Welcome back to Miyazaki and Me. I'm Kyle. And I'm Shane. Uh, this time, uh, as we are not going over a, a Hayao Miyazaki movie, we are joined by two very special guests. Yeah, we're going to hear the dulcet tones of the twins themselves. So we are joined by Max and Joey from Twinima Cinema. Hello! Oh, hey! Uh, introduce yourselves so they know whose voice is who. Uh, well, he's Joey. And I'm Max. Wait, what? Wait. I don't think it works that way. Darn it. All right, well, anyhow, I'm Joey. And I'm Max. He's, he's Max, yes. Right. <laughs> and together we're the hosts of Twinima Cinema, so thank you for having us on. Yeah, I, I, re I really enjoyed your podcast. The couple episodes that I've listened to, Shane's listened to a few more. Um, and then I, of course, also went to college with both of you fine gentlemen. So, uh, As did I. Yeah, Shane did too. <laughs> Can't forget about Shane's college experience. Well, technically, Max filmed Shane in a, in a video for, for a play he did. So, Like, did I? Yeah, was so was, long. Yeah, he was in the he was in that rent scene, wasn't he? Oh yeah, I had to hang out with him by the. <laughs> oh my god! Yes, Max and I yeah. used to have to hang out all the time on stage for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were stuck under a scaffold for hours at a time. Yep. Um. So we we joined. We brought a couple guests on, uh, because we were we we're not reviewing a Hayao Miyazaki movie. As I said, uh, we are uh reviewing our first iso takahata film grave of the fireflies or as it's more well known grave of the fire cries because this is so sad like we were wondering why you asked us to watch this movie because yeah it, it's sad yeah i didn't give you guys any prep whatsoever did i not not well, really I... Yeah, I had gone into this knowing it's one of the saddest movies ever made. I just hadn't actually watched it yet. See, for me, I had seen it before, but I saw it uh, like 15 years ago. And so I had been avoiding it ever since on purpose. Um, but now I'm I'm back in it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty familiar uh, um, excuse I've heard from people a lot because we were we were talking to a lot of uh, a lot of different people about guesting on some of these uh, non Miyazaki episodes, and most of the first things that they say is, "I'll do anything but Grave of the Fireflies," because too sad. <laughs> I'll probably try to keep that tradition alive going forward as well. Yep. Uh, so, so this this film was released on April sixteenth of nineteen eighty eight. Uh, so am I the only one that was alive, right? Nope, I was alive. Okay, you I were was alive. alive. As was my twin, yes. I think. Yes, we were. <laughs> <laughs> so we were all alive, but pretty young. Very pretty young. young. I was at an age where they would be very mad if I was in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have been just over two. So yeah, they they wouldn't have liked me in the theater either. Uh, this this film actually was part of a double feature, uh, which is really hilarious when you think about it, because it was a double feature between this and My Neighbor Totoro. What's hilarious about that? I mean, these two movies make perfect sense to be together. They're both uh, upbeat romps that uh, 
that really get the blood flowing and uh, make you want to pet a cat. It makes you want to take a cat bus off a cliff. So that was the problem, actually. They were debating on which movie to air first in the double feature. And when they aired My Neighbor Totoro first and then had Grave of the Fireflies second, people just walked out of the theater. Wow. Because they were like, oh, this is really sad. I don't want to deal with this. But then when they aired Grave of the Fireflies first, they were like, okay, I, I think I can get through this. And then, oh, good, a happy ending with my neighbor Totoro. Yay. The children live. Uh, fun fact, the reason why this was a double feature is that uh, Miyazaki couldn't make Totoro unless they agreed to uh, the double feature. That they, they pitched it as a double feature just so he could do that movie uh, because they people found it Totoro is a ridiculous premise and they didn't really want to support it. So they couldn't find uh, people to back it. Interesting. I did not know that, especially considering it's become one of his most beloved films. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's literally the studio logo, you know, on... oh, that's what that is. Yeah. It's yeah. It's the Totoro monster. That was probably a real big F you to the people who didn't back him in the first place. <laughs> right. It, yeah. Um, but like, like the politest fu possible. Oh, oh, there's there's a lot of polite fus from from a uh, uh, studio Ghibli. I mean, we we talked in the when one of the last episodes when uh, when Harvey Weinstein got the rights for Princess Mononoke um, after a less than good uh, earlier cut of of Nausicaa. Um, they they cut the, the tradition that no one could do any cuts, and you know Harvey Weinstein was very notorious for cutting up movies, and so when he got the rights to Princess Mononoke, they sent him a katana with just the phrase "no cuts" written on a letter to it. I, I wouldn't say that's a polite fu when you're sending someone a sword. <laughs> I bet he got the point. He got the point though. God. <laughs> all right so other other movies that came out in 1988 uh i've got five listed here because there were five uh four that i've seen uh but uh five that are pretty influential uh one being akira uh the the very first apple seed movie um another incredibly sad movie the land before time Oh, all the cries. Oliver and Company. And actually... Why should I worry? Yeah. And actually a movie that Joey and I kind of bonded over. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Kind of bonded over? That's a goddamn masterpiece. It's Perfect. such a good movie. That's a pretty impressive year for animated films, really. It really is. Like, think about that. Yeah, yeah, because you had you had Don Bluth at the height of his powers, Disney kind of on the come up again after a few lackluster films. I think Oliver and Company was the start of the Renaissance. Yes, um, like a lot of people credit, you know, Little Mermaid, which would be their next movie, uh, but you know, so much had been put in, in place through Oliver and Company that, and then. The genius that is Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Also, you can't forget, like you just said, Akira, right? Yeah. 
So, like, we're talking an insane set of films from that year, all from different studios making some of, like, well, I'm not going to call Oliver and Company Disney's best work, but everyone else in that category is kind of making, like, some of their best films in that same year. Yeah, it's it's really impressive. And I'd like to, to mention, once we hit 100 subscribers on the YouTube channel, Shane and I are actually going to review Akira. And I don't believe Kyle's ever seen it. I have not seen it. So it would be a uh, a brand new uh, uh, watching for him. So it'd be kind of fun for me. But yeah, so so what are what are your guys's general thoughts of uh, getting into the movie itself of Grave of the Fireflies? I had no trouble getting into it whatsoever because I'm I'm a big admirer of the studio Ghibli. Uh, catalog and i was excited to watch this movie even knowing it was going to be sad and i don't know i was kind of struck by how non-fanciful it was to be honest like it was just a movie that happened to be animated yes i i agree with that and shane and i actually had had talked about that like there are, there are a lot of skilled animators that are part of this movie and they all kind of have to tone down their style to just tell this realistic portrayal of this short story. Well, one of the things that's kind of interesting when it comes to uh, how the illustration doesn't really pop, it all kind of meshes together. This is one of the few films that the illustrations were outlined in brown rather than black to give the whole, the whole movie kind of a softer feel. And that at that point, it had never been done in anime before. It was kind of done on a challenge. Uh, which because uh, brown does not contrast as well as as black does, um, but it but it really give, did give it that kind of softer, almost everything kind of blended uh, with each other a little bit easier in my in my opinion. I think like one of the first things that really struck me watching it this time, especially, is I didn't remember that it wasn't uh, quite a chronological film, that it jumps around a little bit. And that we have this outside perspective of him um, after he's already passed away, kind of revisiting his whole or like basically the last year of his life. And I, I just that worked really well. And I didn't I didn't think that it would, I guess. Like, I didn't remember it at all from the first time. So seeing it this time, I'm like, did I forget it because it didn't work? Or why why is that not a part of my memory but i guess it's just because you're so taken away with the story and and another huge thing like yes i guess the film does like it wouldn't doesn't necessarily feel like an animated film like you're saying it's this it doesn't have a lot of those elements but you also almost certainly couldn't make this film if it wasn't animated uh actually that was one of the reasons why the author of the short story uh went with and was okay with doing this as animated he argued that um the backdrop of the story couldn't be done correctly and that he didn't feel that uh children not of that time could correctly portray the characters and i don't think you'd want to really put a, a child of especially her age um through a film of that type you know because you you couldn't like you know a lot of older actors have these famous roles where like they starve themselves in order to look a certain way you couldn't achieve that with a child without being child abuse but it is so profoundly done through the animation uh very much so but uh kind of an interesting build off of that is that the original voice actress of um 
of Setsuko, uh, Setsuko it was actually a uh, four-year-old. Uh, Isao wanted the uh, actors to actually be age-appropriate. Uh, and I believe they said that when she came in to audition, uh, oh, she was five. Um, she he was she was cast after two sentences. She just said her name and that she was five years old, and she was cast immediately. Good call. Yeah, she did. Like I listened to the sub version, and it's it is it is just powerful. You know, hearing her voice and just what they're going through. Uh, the the voice work. Um, even though I'm, you know, reading a lot of it, it, you can just feel all of the emotions coming through. They did an excellent job. And this is kind of an interesting take for our for our podcast because Kyle and I always watch the uh, the dub versions. Um, I I appreciate the original uh, uh, the original language uh, version of it, but I've always been it's it's been easier for me to always watch the the dubs of of films because I mean I. I I don't get distracted. Um, I can be distracted a little bit easily by with a uh, with a subtitled uh, movie, but but when it's dubbed, it's easier for me to focus in and, and enjoy it. Um, so it's nice to have the uh, the opinion from somebody that's actually watched the the original uh, uh, language. Well, also like another one of the things with a lot of these films um, is just the 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 incredible casting that they did for the English, English, wow, can't even speak English language performers. They like, we're talking all-star casts, you know, when they did dub most of these. Yeah. Yeah. And then then we've, we've been talking about that. Yeah. Pretty regularly, but this one actually didn't have like, it wasn't a bunch of all-stars. It was just a lot of good character actors. Yeah. And, and I think, and I think that was to the benefit of the film. I think that's mostly because of when Disney acquired the releasing rights to a lot of these movies in the 90s, Grave of the Fireflies was not among them. And they were known for dubbing their movies with a lot of, you know, big uh, celebrity voices. So it was kind of uh, uh, refreshing to get a bunch of non-famous, you know, voices on this one. Yeah, that's why, uh, uh, as... Uh, Joey found out the hard way earlier. This one is not in the HBO Max lineup of the Studio Ghibli films. It's the only one that is actually not included in the Studio Ghibli as a whole when it come when it came to selling the rights. Uh, so this one was on Hulu. Uh, there is actually two uh, dubbed versions of this movie. Uh, it was dubbed in 1998 and then again in 2012. Uh, 2012 was mostly used uh, well-known voice actors, Adam Gibbs, Emily Neves. Um, as the main two, uh, the 98 version was a little bit different. They actually brought in uh, one person. It was well known for being for uh, use voice in, in Speed Race, uh, uh, Kareen Orr. Uh, but then uh, the other two major uh, names on here were actually Amy Jones and J. Robert Spencer were both uh, Broadway actors. Uh, J. Robert Spencer, known for being the uh, original cast of Next to Normal. So if you've ever listened to the soundtrack of that, you've listened to him. Uh, but then, yeah, it's it's just it's just full on, um, well known uh, English dubs uh, actors for the 2012 version, which is the one that uh, Kyle and I watched. We had the Blu-ray. Well, that's good because physical media is the way to go. Yeah. Which um, actually, on that note, um, there's a lot of scenes in the in this film that are very dark, and like physically dark. There's a lot of blacks, and there's a lot of like uh, cloud cover and explosions and other things. But watching it streaming was unfortunate because it actually muddied a lot of that. 
And so I was sitting there and I was just like, I guarantee it doesn't look like this in the original, but I was just upset rewatching it now because I'm just like, and this is a part of why streaming sucks. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, like, like I said, we, we watched the Blu-ray and yeah, there's there's so much good like animation going on. Um, they actually did a really great job. So the, the movie starts out uh, with actually the death of our main character with a classic, like I actually wrote in my notes, a classic like film noir style line of, you know, September 21st, 1945. That was the night I died. And just that's a, that takes balls. And I appreciate that. Yeah. And as Joey said, I didn't, I didn't remember that it, that it began that way or that it was told from this kind of, you know, third person of somebody standing outside their own life and, and retelling it. Um, I, I had completely forgotten that from the first uh, watch. And yeah, there's, there's a couple spots uh, at the beginning there where he, he essentially just looks right at the, breaks the fourth wall and looks right at you. And then again, at the end where he does it again, uh, that are just really well done moments, in my opinion. Yeah, I think the one that really caught me as uh, super well done was where um, he interacts with himself on the train when he's like bringing uh, that box home. Um, and then we like just basically dolly, <laughs> dolly away and we see that he's also on the train with her. Um, it's the same train that they get on in the beginning of the movie. And that moment just really that one hit home. But yeah, what what I was talking about with the with the animation was that very first bombing sequence. And they do such a great job of showing the fear and showing the chaotic nature that is that was going on in that type of situation that then throughout the rest of the film all you need to do is hear those sirens and you know it's like oh no, they've got to get somewhere. Yeah, the, the war imagery is really well done in this, uh, and it's, it's horrifyingly well done. Um, and yeah, those added little little beats of like the siren thrown on there, or the the little because uh, Grave of the Fireflies at some points it's fireflies in the air, at some points it's it's the fire bombs coming down, and those little uh, animation uh, tricks just makes this just kind of beautiful to watch in times. Uh, and also, I w want to shout out the uh, the sound uh, design and music of this, uh, especially because at points they are completely silent, where you, there's nothing in the background beyond the voices, and then you get those long beats of no talking, and and you you would think in an animated movie, especially one from the '80s, that long beats of, of full silence might might affect it in a bad way, but it really really added to the emotion of the scenes that were going on. And then when they did bring in the music, uh, it just kind of hit you, you know, that much harder. Like when uh, his his sister was sad near the beginning and he just jumps up and decides, he's like, look, I can I can do these pull-ups really good and, and move on. And the jump-in of the music right there kind of, you know, gave you a bit of a idea of his franticness at that moment. Yeah, I, the sound design is like a huge game changer in this movie for sure, because there's just so many elements going on simultaneously in certain moments. And then, like you said, absolutely nothing in others. And they do an excellent job of choosing which moments um, deserve that kind of attention. 
I was just wondering how long he was going to keep doing those push-ups because they kind of follow him doing that for like a minute. Yeah, they they do hang on that for a little while. I like I really thought in that moment, you know, he's just freaking out like, all right, uh, panic mode. How how do I make her feel better? And he does this and then he's committed to doing it. And then he's just like, well, I'm going to just keep going till it works. You know, he never like had a backup plan. He's just like, I guess this is it. So we're going to do this until I can't do it anymore. And that's the movie. Yeah. And, and I mean, that was, that was one of those scenes that I, I pointed out as so as how realistic it is, because I think we've all, you know, either with, you know, younger siblings or nieces and nephews had to do the, like, you're crying. I don't know what to do. I'm going to distract you somehow. Look, I'm going to be fun and playful and please stop crying. Yeah. Uh, Usually it never works out the way you want. (laughs) The, uh, the scene when he gets brought in to see his mother it, uh, after this is pretty oh yeah wrenching and and i mean the they they show her a couple times and you know it starts with 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 him just seeing her kind of burned and she had just he had said that she had just gone to sleep which i don't i don't think that i would have liked it if they showed her before she fell asleep and then after a few minutes, you see her again, but this time with bugs and maggots crawling on her. And it's yeah. just so horrific. Yeah, seeing that was like the one sign that this movie was not going to take it easy on you. Yeah, the, yeah, there were no punches pulled whatsoever. <laughs> they want to let you know from the get-go that that's how it's going to be. Because that's how it was. And I think that's something that is... Um, you have to give this movie incredible credit for, is that it did not any punches and it just was a very realistic portrayal of what it's like to live in a wartime situation like i just don't think i i, I don't know about you guys but for me growing up throughout all of school in the united states i didn't ever hear about what it was like anywhere else where we were at war you know it's like we'd only hear about what it was what it was uh going on back in the United States and what our soldiers were doing and how that was going. But I never until basically college started learning about, Hey, look at how we destroyed these places. And sometimes even the happenings in the U S were kept from us. Like what we all, the whole country learned about the Tulsa massacre this year because of Watchmen. Yep. I, which is crazy. I had no, just like everyone else, I had no idea that it was a real thing. Like, the second I saw that, I, I looked it up, because I was like, that feels, like, pretty exact that they're they're mentioning it there. And I pulled up, and I was like, because it happened. Okay. So that's why this movie is very important, because it gives you the perspective of one of those people of history that their story never gets told. Yeah, especially, especially as Joey said, here in America, because it's, uh, as, it, it's, this, America's very well known for having one-sided history books. Uh, especially from a young age. Uh, uh, you know, there's still books that are being hopefully taken out that talk about uh, the Confederates of the Civil War in a in a better light than they should. And so the fact that, you know, we don't get to hear about what happened in, in Japan during during uh, World War II or, um, you know, the movies where you get to see what was happening in Germany or, or you know, Fr- France or England even, you know, the, the Allies during that time. Uh, and being able to see it from from that kind of point of view is just I mean it's it's 
depressing to watch, but it's it's important to watch. But it's also a movie that doesn't really offer any allegiances either, other than the fact that the main character's dad serves on a ship somewhere. I guess he isn't like a blind fanatic to the Emperor or anything like that, like we hear with other characters in the movie. Yeah, yeah, because even, even when he finds out that, like, Japan had surrendered, he's kind of a little taken aback and being like, what? I thought, oh, no, how how'd that happen? But he's more worried about his dad at that point. Exactly. He's definitely more worried about his family than he's worried about Japan having lost. Uh, and one thing is that some critics in the West uh, found this to be possibly an anti-war film. And Takahata kind of put the kibosh on that right away, saying that uh, n- in no way did he uh, try to make this an anti-war anime. And he feels like it contains absolutely no such message. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. He doesn't think that this movie's anti-war in any way. Yeah, he said that he was just trying to portray it uh, from a truthful perspective. Uh, he did not actually try to create this in an anti-war place. Like, it, like he's not, he's not taking, trying to take the context and push it into an anti-war uh, area uh, context. He he just wants it to be truthful to what a struggling, you know, struggling people would have had to do through this time. Gotcha. So now, does it come off anti-war film. for sure? But it's it's not. But but it's not made to be anti-war. Yeah. Okay. I, I see what you're saying. It wasn't like he didn't have a message going into it, but there is a message in the film, whether that was, you know, his full-on outset intention or not. Correct. Sorry. Like nope. right when you said that, I was just like, wait a minute. Was... Did he did he watch the movie he made? Yeah, I was about to say, and it is his direct quote saying that there's absolutely no such me- message that he he pushed it that far, uh, but he just wanted to to kind of portray the and and show sympathy for the people that that you know might have gone through these kind of things, because there's uh, including him, he was actually the only uh, animator that uh, lived through um, the bombings, um, and was all at least that was old enough to remember them, because he was like seven or eight, I believe, at the time. Yeah, and then he would have also lived through... Uh, the film does a really good job, actually, of talking about how tight everything was rationed during these. And that kind of becomes, you know, a main crux of the film is just how, you know, there was such little food and everything to go around. I mean, it's definitely a crux since since uh, malnutrition is, you know, kind of the... In the end, it is the greatest villain in this movie. Apart from the aunt. The, yeah, the, oh, man, that aunt. Yep, hated her. Uh, fun fun fact about that, there is two actual live-action live, live action versions of these movies. One was made as the for the 60th anniversary of the end of World War II. It was a made-for-TV movie, and it uh, done in 2005. And it was actually from the viewpoint of the aunt, um, and it was... Point, uh, going from the issue of how a wartime environment could change uh, a kind woman into a cold-blooded woman. I'm curious as to whose like sister she was, the the mothers or the fathers. I'm pretty sure they. It was like the fathers. Wait, mothers. Wait, I, I believe this. I believe it was the fathers because at one point yeah. she says, "I think that you have family of the mothers in Tokyo." Yeah, of your yeah, mom in that's, Tokyo. that's right. I'm just wondering where her devotion to her brother was. It's like, why, why are you being so cold to your, like, literal blood? Well, like, I think that devotion is 
pretty obvious. Her devotion was to Japan first. You know, it's it's all about if you're not doing anything to help the war effort, to help your father, um, then you don't deserve any of these rations. And yeah, children. that's yeah, there are children. It's ridiculous. I agree. But that's the that's the point of view she's coming from. And I think I would be interested to see that live action version just to see that character who, like they said, seemed was a was a good kind person before just turn into this what ends up being basically the like the only real human villain in the movie yeah because she she just yeah she's she's definitely the the antagonist of the of the film because she keeps pushing things to their brink of whether it's you know oh you've got to sell your mother's kimonos to to trade for rice and then it's like, oh, I'm not cooking for you anymore. Yeah, they, and I think the movie also does a good job of, yes, I, I hated her, and she does come off as a villain, but she doesn't kick them out. There, there is a pride point involved here with the uh, with with Seda, um, and at one point, you know, the the farmer that he's buying from, and even tells him that, you know, push your pride to the side and and, and apologize and see if you can go back to the house. Because, you know, they're like I said, they're not kicked out, but they are definitely mistreated while they are there. I feel it was a matter of time, though. She would have found a reason to kick them out. I, I had I, that feeling as well. I don't think so. <laughs> I actually go, uh, go the other way on that one is I don't think her pride would have let her kick them out. I don't think she could have allowed herself to be seen as someone who would kick out orphans especially her family. Yeah. Well, and, and even, even she says in like one of the dinner scenes with her, her husband and daughter, her, I believe she says, you know, all, all he needs to do is apologize and I'll start, you know, cooking for them again. He even went and, you know, kind of threw it in my face and went and got cooking pots of his own, you know, so it was definitely a pride thing. But again, they're True. And we're only seeing it from the kid's point of view. And I think that's a, a, I guess that's just an important part of reality, right? Is we only see the times that she says mean things to them or does mean things where she's also living her life the other 23 hours of the day. And maybe she's not being such an ass, you know, like maybe there's some good over there and we only see the bad um because whenever you have one strict point of view you're gonna have only that information to go off of yeah they they definitely i mean the the point of view you see her at it does is not painted well but yeah that you definitely don't really know where she's fully coming from but they give you kind of an idea with the the little remarks and uh and the way that she speaks to her family about them and uh the the i mean it's a it's a kind of a stereotypical family dynamic too where the dad doesn't seem to care that much and the and the daughter uh just seems to kind of agree and and nod along to what the mother was saying because at one point uh she doesn't say much but she did say uh you should scold them again uh, at yeah, one I point th i think i think she said this and i'm not 100 percent sure but i'm pretty sure she said that that guy in the house is someone she's like renting an apartment to 
I think she calls him uh, her lodger, and then that's her oh. daughter. So I don't actually, like, maybe her husband is also fighting in the war, or is dead, or something, but I, I'm pretty sure that that guy is just the, the, the lodger who lives in her place. That would make sense, because I do remember her specifically calling him that man, rather than, you know, my husband or something like that, so... Because they, uh, they see him in an alleyway at some point later in the movie, and they get recognized, and he runs away. Was that the same man? I think so. It was the guy in the glasses, right? Yeah. Okay. I didn't. I didn't piece that together of that being the same person from the house. Okay. I could be. Was, uh, no, it could, it, that that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it was right after they had stolen for the first time as well. Which I think were some tasty-looking tomatoes. I believe they were tomatoes. Yes. And, yeah, there was a lot of them, and they looked really... Uh, is juicy the right term for tomato? I'm not a tomato eater. I'm not really sure. I mean, sure. I think juicy? so. There's a so, lot of tomato juice things, so I feel like juicy is pretty appropriate. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of tomato paste things. It could be pasty. <laughs> that just doesn't sound appealing at all. Yeah, that doesn't sound that doesn't work in that context. Doesn't come off my tongue correctly. Like, oh man, I had that I had this really pasty tomato earlier today. Uh they do a, a good job of of early on in the movie kind of showing uh Setsuko uh, was was itching and even when they were, you know, happy uh still and they were at the beach, when she took off her shirt, you could see the marks on her back already uh forming of where, you know, later on in a really sad scene, you know, when she's with the doctor, you can see them spread throughout uh, throughout the body of rashes everywhere and, and real thin, but but they they it, it's it's subtle, the changes that they made to her uh, throughout mm-hmm. the movie, but you could see her getting skinnier and you could see the little marks forming throughout, which was kind of... Yeah, especially... It, in well such done. A... I wasn't going to say good, but well, well done. That's especially... <laughs> in such like like you said in such a powerfully happy moment where they're having a great time on the beach to still have that seeping in as a part of her reality uh it's it all like it's some really good foreshadowing that just you know punches real hard later yeah well and that's that's the thing i i i also pointed out that there's there's some moments of levity like when they're at the beach but even within the levity, it's yeah, she's got the she's scratching and, and all that stuff. But then she you even get the complete and utter 180 juxtaposition of her playing and chasing after that little crab and doing the crab motion and keep following it, keep following it, keep following it, and then finds a dead body. And it's always very creepy with dead things, too, because they absolutely establish that by having flies or maggots uh, on the body. Yes. Uh, so the the scene, and, and I just kind of brought it up nonchalantly, but the scene with the doctor was also very heart-wrenching of him yelling at the doctor to give her medicine and, you know, find a way to help her. And when he says he just needs food and screaming at him, you know, where am I supposed to get the, get the food? And just seeing the doctor's attitude to this child that, you know, was obviously just the doctor had to know the child was going to die soon. And just being so nonchalant and so stone hearted. 
towards towards them is just it's I, I've said it many times it's it's heartbreaking because it's it's probably how they had to go through things because they probably saw it all the time and so it's probably was a really good uh, characterization of what the what the doctors back then were doing. Yeah, I think the only nice person in this movie was the what the police officer that the farmer turns him into after stealing. Yeah, the the yeah the police officer that just said, "Well, the farmer roughed you up enough," you know. Like you could call it assault. Okay, I was just gonna say, and then you know after that moment, he then water, and it's just such a, you know, a, such a simple but profoundly nice gesture that nobody's been doing for them at all throughout the movie. Yeah, because you even have the the almost betrayal, and this is where. I, I get the, like, the aunt might not have been a, a truly bad person, but when when Seto tells about his mother dying and basically said, like, Seku hadn't been told yet and he didn't want to upset her, so that's why he wasn't going to tell her. And then the aunt goes behind his back and tells her, and he doesn't know about it for until they until they're at the shelter. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the first moments that you really see uh, Seda break down and cry too in the in the film. He does a really good job of keeping it together until he founds out that the sadness was given to uh, his sister, and that's when you see him break down, which really kind of shows the 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 love that he felt for his sister and how much he wanted to protect her. Yeah, and and literally that scene is our titular scene because it is it is Seku burying these fireflies that died overnight from the from the tin can that she used to keep them in. So she is literally making the grave of the fireflies. The the scene after she dies, which in itself was just uh, I mean, I was crying, uh, and I'd seen it before, and I knew it was coming, and it almost made it worse. Um, but when he goes to the the gentleman for the for the pyre equipment, that the the man just seemed so happy, and that like he's was making his tail, yeah, yeah, and that was just really hard for me to watch, honestly, like. There, there's a lot of scenes in this movie, and for some reason, seeing this man just so happy right after uh, uh, this four-year-old is uh, had died, and he's literally giving, uh, selling means to uh, dispose of the body, and he's just, he's smiling, he's talking about how beautiful a day it is, and it was just, it, it made me uncomfortable, and, and just, I, 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 it, it's well done in the sense that produce these feelings out of me but i hated it <laughs> i think it kind of speaks the to the denial that japan was going through after the surrender like they'd just gone through all this stuff and they just needed a, a silver lining somewhere and even in the face of death yeah they have to do something even if it is kind of callous in the moment and and i think that this movie ended correctly not not following uh, a Seda until his his death that you see at the beginning of the movie, but but ending kind of with that pyre, uh, funeral pyre. I was uh, 
when I first saw the movie, I wasn't sure if there was going to be continue more, but I don't think I could have taken any more. Well, and we also already saw more. Uh, so yeah. I think like that, I think that's one of the reasons why we forgot that beginning part, you know, is it's like I, where he's kind of coming back in revisiting everything is because it feels like that's actually the end of the story, you know, which it is. But that's just not the way they chose to tell it. And I think you're correct that if they would have told it that way, people wouldn't have been able to handle it. You know, having her pass away and then have him die like five minutes later. I, I don't I don't think that would have worked very well for uh, audiences. Yeah, it would have just been almost too much. And, and it emphasizes her death and and really the song that they chose for the the montage after or her her death is is really the best word for it really is haunting like it's it's just so haunting and so moving and yeah like i'm sitting on like one end of the couch just trying to not cry I'm not even going to look over at Shane who was on the other end of the couch and just like, Nope, I know if I look over at him, I'm going to cry too. Um, just trying to hold it all together. I too get that feeling when I look at Shane sometimes. And I don't know what you're talking about. My allergies were just really bad. So I got, I got a, a theory here that uh, I was running with for the movie. I think that, he says he died is actually the day that his sister died. I I could see that. Like, we don't actually know the timeline of the movie, you know, because we don't get any other dates other than that date. But in that moment in the movie with that voiceover narration, that, that uh, I believe he's still technically alive when he says that. Like, he's about to die. And we, we see him basically die, but we didn't we didn't actually and in, for me, I didn't feel like other like he died. It's just like his spirit kind of left him. You know, does that does that make sense? At least kind of visually what's yeah. going on? Yeah, very much so. And I could definitely see that because this is uh just to bring the happiness uh even even higher, uh it's based off a true story. Uh it's based off a semi autobiographical short story uh, by uh, Akiyuku uh Nasuka and who himself experienced a lot of these things um, after the firebombing of Kobe, Japan in 45. He actually had two sisters. One of his sisters uh, died because of the sickness. Um, his adopted father actually uh, died during the firebombing, as did the, like the mother and this one did. And then his uh, younger adopted sister died of malnutrition, just like Setsuko in the story. So it would make sense that that kind of line is kind of written in that that way that you know this story is played off as you know two actual deaths but really he's talking about the death of his soul and it's that's coming from the author really well, like to bring up that happiness yeah <laughs> it's all real i thought this story was sad before but now it's even worse yeah cuz well and 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 i i like Joey's theory as well because you actually have they check on Seto, but they they don't say anything. He just slumps over, and then the next body they check on, they said this one's gone. I think they say this one's gone too, 
Uh, yeah, that, yeah, I think they, yeah, I think they, there might have been a two in there. That's right. Yeah, they, yeah, it's like this one's gone as well, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that the uh, that sets goes dead. But also, with that said, it doesn't mean that he's not. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. I I took it to mean this time anyhow um, that he he's gonna die because he's just given up on life. Yeah, that's that was the interpretation that I took watching it this time. But I could easily see it go either way, you know, because he's completely malnourished and he's not doing anything. He's he's given up. And so maybe his whole body has given up at that point, too. And then right after that, his spirit kind of joins his sister and they get on the train. So and and yeah, going back to that opening scene with the with the guys and they actually grab the candy tin and I put in my notes a very rosebud feeling of these guys just tossing away this candy tin as if it's meaningless. I thought the same thing. I, I almost said when the candy tin fell out of his jacket, I almost went rosebud. But I kept it in because this is a serious movie. Uh, so uh, we, we've kind of recapped the, the, the movie itself. Um, let's talk about how we liked it how, or, or didn't like it. Uh, we'll we'll go uh, uh, guess first. Uh, let's go with uh, Max. What what would you think? I mean, it's an excellent movie, and it's again a story that needed to be told. As far you know, you, you never get that perspective most of the time. And I appreciated that it was animated because it made it a little more palatable. Uh, uh, the word in my brain was stomachable, which is not a word. Um, but this, yeah. this is not a good word. <laughs> It's like it, it went down easier because it was animated. There was a possibility of whimsy, but it wasn't going to come. And I know it was just a good movie and just happened to be animated. That's how I kind of feel about it. I, while we've been doing this podcast, have been looking at some of the different trivia things uh, about the movie. And I was on IMDb and I just rated it a 10. So that's how I feel about this movie. I think it is excellent you know and any it's it's um i was thinking about this during the movie because there are a couple of choices that like i don't really love like when they uh fade to black in between scenes and really kind of just um do a lot of vignettes i'm not a, usually a big fan of that and i don't think that i really loved it in this movie but the story and the way that it comes across is so incredibly compelling that I don't really care if I don't like everything about how it was made because the story is so powerful that it overtakes anything that I uh, disliked about it. Yeah, you know who else rated this movie a 10? Roger Ebert. It's part of his great movies list that he, uh, that he released in, I believe, the year 2000. That guy um, usually knows what he's talking about. Yeah, in general. Yeah, I, I I agree with with everything you guys said. Like, as a film, this is just very very well done. Um, it's it's a I I mean it's a terrible story, but it's a great it's it's a important story to hear. I think, um, and it's 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 beautiful in its sadness. Um, uh, I, I I agree with all the points. Like I don't think that I could really 
watch this movie as a live action movie. Um, the closest that I think uh, comes to this is maybe something like Atonement, um, which also, you know, war, mostly sadness kind of involved. But, you know, in, in, in the end, they kind of lie to you to not lie to you at points. And um, this doesn't really do that. Uh, and so it would be really hard to see see this uh a live action version of this movie like the the idea of 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 the one where they that the ant is the main character is more intriguing to me than than seeing them follow the the two children um but i i would i would say that this might be it, it's not going to be at the end of the day it's not going to be my favorite studio ghibli or uh, a film but it will be one of the best ones they've done if that makes sense. I also think it's kind of a testament to the power of animation too. It's not just for, you know, flights of fancy or uh, kid distractions. You can tell serious stories with it and it can still be just as powerful as live action. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Cause even when we did our, our initial rankings of what Shane and I had both watched, uh, Shane ranked his by his favorites and I ranked mine the best ones that I'd seen and I had seen this previously and it was my number one because I was like just far and away like it's so well made and just so such a good film and yeah whether it's animated or not and I I'm kind of on the same track as you Max of just like the animation actually helps because I don't think I, I would have been able to stomach a live action version of this. Yeah, no, me and Joey have certain relatives that don't really care for quote-unquote cartoons, so this was uh, this was good. Yeah. Um, there there is one fun fact. Uh, one of the one of the key animators uh, on this uh, it was actually his second uh, Studio Ghibli movie, and that was Hideki Anno, who would go on to, uh, he was one of the key animators here. He was one of the key animators in Nausicaa. Uh, he would go on to start his own uh, animation studio and start the C series Neon Genesis Evangelion. And so that, this is one of, this is his first film, you said? Uh, this is one of his, his second film that he worked with Studio Ghibli. He, he had done some animation for Nausicaa as well he was the he was the the big battle scene at the end uh he's the one who animated the the god monster the like earth breaker uh sequence at the end of nausicaa that's awesome yeah and later on in his career he'll actually be an actor for uh, uh miyazaki uh he'll be a, a voice actor in in the wind rises he actually ends up being the lead voice actor for that movie oh that's nuts yeah, and one of his few acting roles. Uh, yeah, so I um, think we've got our good final thoughts out here. Uh, let's uh, let's get some plugs going. Uh, uh, Max, uh, Joey, uh, where can we listen to Twinema Cinema? Uh, you go ahead and take this one, Max. Uh, Twinema Cinema, T-W-I-N-E-M-A Cinema, uh, can be found on most podcatching services your uh your apple podcast spotify um we're looking to get up on amazon alexa stuff as well um but yeah just uh search twin cinema or cinema twinema on twitter uh which 
weirdly enough, Tournament Cinema itself was not available. And uh, I might say, uh, as someone that has listened to uh, a lot of these episodes, very much enjoy it. Um, I recommend the uh, uh, because I fully remember watching both these movies and actually enjoying both of them. Uh, the Volcano and uh, Dante's Peak episode uh, has probably been my favorite that I've listened to of you guys so far. So uh, you're doing some good good work on this on this podcast. Well, before we uh, get off this topic, um, who did you agree with on that podcast? Uh. Uh, I believe Max was the one that liked Volcano, and that was the one that I that I also think is. Ah, oh, come on, victory! Uh, it is it is just more fun of a movie. Like Dante's Peak's probably the the uh, the better film, but but Volcano's just more fun, so it's more. Oh enjoyable. man, Joey, are you hearing this? I'm hearing how wrong he is, but we already went over this for like an hour and a half last time, so I don't want to go too much further right now. <laughs> It should be noted that the whole concept of the podcast is comparing two movies with pretty much the same plot that came out at the same time in history. So if that's your kind of podcast, come check us out. Uh, And then uh, for my plugs, uh, I have a new episode, a fairly new episode at the release of this, of uh, Fantasy Hangover out there. I do that with uh, my buddy Carl and sometimes my buddy Chris. Uh, So check that out. You can find that on Stitcher and soundcloud i think are the only two spots that that, that's going to be at and then uh also listen to this podcast and subscribe to our to uh knocked out uh entertain or knocked out films films. on youtube because i want to make kyle watch uh akira well yeah i mean akira is at 100 and if we get to 300 uh you just get to pick and torture me with something so um any anime that i i so choose yeah. Can I make you watch an entire series? Can I make no. you watch Arlai in April? No, dear God, no. Just so that we dis- can just cry into a pit of sad. Yeah, it was like just sadness. your description of that film, uh, of that series, made me cry. Uh, so no. Uh, I actually was describing that series to my mom this this past week when I was on vacation, and uh, uh, I started to cry while telling her what the show was about, and then I realized, yep, nope, this. Yeah, can't can't really talk about this one. But yeah, like like you said, if you subscribe and we get to 100 subscribers, uh, then we we will do Akira, uh, and you can find that at Knocked Out Films on Instagram, Twitter, all social media, and the link to the YouTube channel will be there, and the links to this podcast will also be there. Uh, make sure to rate and review all that fun stuff. Thanks. And next time uh, we will be doing My Neighbor Totoro. Uh, which is back on HBO Max, so you can head back to that app, and you can pretty much stay on that app for the rest of the rest of time because that's where we will be living. Uh, it'll be a little bit happier than this one for our for that double feature. Yes, and because it's fun and whimsical, it will just be Shane and I. Yeah, you guys don't want to punish any more friends with making them watch My Neighbor Totoro, huh? Not that one. Oh, there are there are a couple Miyazaki that we have had enough requests that we have to bring guests on. Is Pompoko one of them? Of course. That's, I think Pompoko is my one neighbor of them, Yamada. Yeah. <laughs> oh god, just raccoon balls, man. Ugh. Just so god. floppy. There's a scene in that movie that's one of the scariest things, and I never forget it. It's the scene where they're walking around with no faces. Oh my god. <laughs> it wasn't where they used their testicles as bouncy balls. That's just cool. It's a good place to sit. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish I could do that. Uh, 
but once again thank thank you guys for for listening to this episode and thank thank you max and joey for coming on of course i think it was a blast guys thank you so much and be good to each other